Hello out there in podcast world, and welcome to another episode of Drumroll, please. Zach and EJ Talk Sports. I'm EJ. This is Zach, and we are back for another exciting episode. But before we get too deep into this, my man Zach has been busy catching and holding down the plate for the Westfield freshman baseball team. How's that been going? Why don't you give us a little update on uh, on freshman baseball in Westfield and how you guys are doing? So on the season, we've had a lot of game can a lot of games canceled. We're currently two and four, and uh, we have three, four more games, three, three more games, and uh, so out of the six games, we we won two. One of them was against a very bad team. Uh, then one of them was a good game, and in four losses, three of them we got destroyed, and then. Uh, we're coming off right before we filmed this, an 8-4 loss to Cranford. It was a good, oh, they're a rival game. That's it was a, a good game. game. Yeah. Oh, uh, man. It was too bad. Yeah. How have you been hitting this year? I've, I've been hitting decently. We haven't been getting much at-bats because, as I mentioned, we've got creamed in three games. <laughs> so, uh, I think I, I've probably put my average, not great, not awful, probably about like 250 on the year. All right. All right. Two, hey, 250 for a catcher with some speed. Nice. Have we um, Have we caught anybody stealing yet? Actually, we've caught zero people stealing, but I think I've only got ran on like four times. All right. No, not many people are running, probably because they're already on second. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> we might have to edit that out. Right. Oh, man, I hear you. It's that's, that's staying in. But we do have an exciting program for you today. We're going to talk some NFL draft. Zach is going to give us his thoughts in uh, current Hall of Famers in Major League Baseball and also what is going on with run production. And we're going to close out by touching on the NBA uh, playoff situation. But let's start with one of the most exciting things that took place last night and through this weekend, which is the NFL draft. And we had a very, very exciting first night. A lot of teams moving around, a couple big trades. So the NFL roster landscape has already changed pretty dramatically in one night. What were your thoughts on day one and what we have seen so far while we were filming right now in the middle of day two? So I thought it was very exciting. Uh, it's kind of a weird draft because it's mostly O-linemen and defensive players being drafted. And uh, as opposed to like last year where there were a lot of QBs, a lot of receivers. And uh, this year it's more of like building their team in the trenches with uh, the D-line and the uh, O-linemen. And personally... I, I do not like this strategy because the way I look at it, O-linemen are important. O-linemen do not win games. You look at the Bengals last year, they had a bunch of O-linemen who were not good. They were, like, very not. They were terrible. And uh, they made it to the Super Bowl. So maybe, obviously, if they had a better O-line, O line, they probably would have won the Super Bowl. Potentially, Aaron Donald wouldn't have been <laughs> dominating. But, uh... I feel like you gotta build on your position players, especially if you're a struggling team. Uh, not a struggling team, but the Patriots. I feel like the Patriots desperately needed a receiver to add to their weapons or a corner because we lost J.C. Jackson and we took an O lineman who was supposed to be like the 70th pick. Took him with the 29th pick. He's from Chattanooga. I, I think that's all I need to say. Uh, and then you look at uh, teams like the Jaguars. The Jaguars, I do not think had a good draft. I do not think they made the right selection, number one. I don't think Trayvon Walker is that good. I think it should have been Aiden Hutchinson, but we'll see. There's a couple, you raise a couple points. 
Um, the first, and before we get into specifics on the draft, I think you kind of started touching on something that maybe other sports have seen. And are we experiencing this kind of renaissance in the NFL where the NFL game, is it opening up? Because if we go back 10 years ago, somebody, or maybe even five years ago, I'm pretty sure many people would call you outright crazy for saying that offensive and defensive linemen do not win you championships. Um, you know, the, the prevailing philosophy was they keep your quarterback upright, they help with your run game. Obviously, the defensive line puts pressure on the quarterback and can, you know, can become a, a major disruptor. But now with the way NFL teams are drafting, with the amount of players, you know, coming out and, and making an immediate impact in the skill positions, is the NFL starting to move and look more like a seven-on-seven seven game where it's a wide-open field and we're not really living, um, you know, inside the tackles or, you know, playing, you know, that, that, that three, you know, three yards in a cloud of dust kind of football where you can scheme and maneuver around, um, you know, having a poor offensive line. What are your What are your thoughts on that right now? Do you see with teams like the way um, you know the uh, Cardinals or the Chiefs or the Bengals have started to put up points and you know not have the best offensive line? Are you Do you feel like the NFL landscape? is changing and the way that teams are actually playing the game of football strategically. I think so because if you look at it, uh, while running the ball and dominant running games are fun for fantasy football, they'll help lead teams to the playoffs. If you look at the past Super Bowl champions, it's been a while since a running back or a run game, a dominant run game, has won the Super Bowl. You look at the Rams. The Rams didn't have a run game. They had a great defense. They had Cooper Cup. Mm -hmm. Then the Chiefs, not the Bucks. The Bucks did not have a dominant run game. All these teams had good run games. Playoff Lenny? Not great. Not uh, dominant? The Chiefs, same thing. And you go back and back, even with those Patriots teams, it was never the running back leading the team. And you look at that, pass blocking is important, but if you have a great quarterback, he doesn't need to be, have that much protection for that long. He needs to be protected a bit. But you can, you can get offensive linemen not in the first round of the draft who can protect your quarterback if you have a great quarterback long enough to make plays. And if the if you realize that this run running the game, running the ball isn't going to win you a championship, yeah. I mean, Christian McCaffrey, what, what's happening with him on the Panthers? He's not playing. Mm -hmm. but he's not winning the championship. Dallin Cook's not winning the championship. The Titans fall apart every year with Derrick Henry. Uh, it wins games. It doesn't win playoff games. So I think because of that, offensive linemen should be falling in the in the draft a bit more. And players like quarterbacks, obviously not this year because it's not a good quarterback draft class, receivers, and D-backs. Even D-line's very important. I did not say that wasn't important. But specifically the O-line, I don't think it's as important to draft. Mm -hmm. I think that we're seeing, you know, like the Brett Favre effect in the NFL now. I think it was players like Favre that created that hybrid because prior to that we had you know um, quarterbacks where they were labeled running quarterbacks which I didn't necessarily like because Michael Vick I thought was a phenomenal quarterback I thought he could throw the ball well but he was labeled a running quarterback because of his you know amazing ability to run the ball Randall Cunningham prior to him who I thought again an amazing passer but was considered a running quarterback a quarterback that who whose body would be put in harm's way Brett Favre had the build 
and the appearance of the guys prior, like a Dan Marino, but had the agility and the ability to move and the elusiveness of some of the quarterbacks that were um, labeled running quarterbacks. We could look really and say maybe the the you know Peyton Manning and Tom Brady draft class you know were really some of the last with statuesque kind of quarterbacks you know quarterbacks that that really um, did not have a lot of elusiveness. Now again, I know that quarterbacks that have lacked elusiveness have been drafted um, drafted since, but I think we're seeing a shift where it's not really. Running quarterbacks. I mean, we probably consider Lamar Jackson still a running quarterback. Like Jalen Hurts. But you were finding that most of these other quarterbacks, big guys like Josh Allen or Herbert, um, can make a lot of plays. It, really, even before that, you had Aaron guys like Aaron Rodgers that came in, you know, um, after Brady and such that were able to make a lot of plays with their feet, but still were very strong arm passing quarterbacks. And I think that that concept, where you know every quarterback now is is expected to have that a certain level of elusiveness has opened the NFL game up. That and obviously the contact rules, probably right, like like you know the hitting and and trying to reduce you know for for great reason you know um, concussion based injuries and a lot of the injuries that are caused via violent violent collisions. I think has now afforded the NFL you know the NFL offenses to really open things up, spread things out. Put the ball down the field, which again is like you're saying, it's it, it's it's creating a renaissance in in what we're seeing, and it's it's impacting the game, and it's impacting the way that a lot of these teams, um, you know, look and and evaluate the quarterback position for sure. Yeah, I feel like if you look at it, there's two, maybe three, if you want to consider Kyler Murray quarterbacks who run the ball like a lot, and then there's quarterbacks like Josh Allen, Justin Herbert, uh, Aaron Rodgers. Like, where you would you said. put Russell Wilson? Would you call him uh, a run a, uh, a running quarterback, or would you call him uh, a, a passing quarterback with elusiveness? I would call him a passing quarterback, like those guys who have a great ability to get out of the pocket, especially Patrick Mahomes, avoid defenders somehow, mm-hmm. and still be able to throw off like their back foot right. or make a play. You look at Josh Allen in the playoffs last year. He's not a running quarterback. He's not having plays specifically designed for him to run it. He had a few in the playoff game, right. but mostly... When he runs the ball, he's if the pressure's coming in, he's going to scramble. Mm-hmm. He sees if he has a throw, and if not, he has the skills on his feet where he can take off. He won't get, like, big, big-time yardage, but he'll get a first down, get out right. of bounds, move the chains, and that's really what you need. That's pretty much, I feel like, the same value as a running back. Mm-hmm. You have a quarterback who can do that, then at that point, it's almost like that's why running backs shouldn't get paid. Right. Like the wide receivers. They don't last long, and they're becoming less and less important mm-hmm. to the game of football. And that's a great point. And another point of yours I want to touch on is the Trayvon Walker, Aiden Hutchinson um, discussion. So, obviously, um, the Jaguars elect to go for the raw talent. Aiden Hutchinson is a proven player. You know, not proven in the NFL, but he comes in basically polished, NFL ready. You know, the equivalent of what I would consider Kenny Pickett to be probably in the quarterback class mm-hmm. of this year's quarterbacks. Like, you know, you're not quite sure what you're going to get from on the NFL level, but you're going to get somebody that's going to approach it professionally, has a certain level of polish to their game already, and probably can step in and start to play. How impactful they are is a different question, but a guy like Trayvon Walker, who obviously will play, um, where's his ceiling? So, my question to you, and I feel like you did answer it though, 
when you're picking number one in the draft, what is what what would you say your focus would be when you're looking at this? Are you going to go for the guy that can come in and make and, and and you know maybe make an impact right away, but has you know more polish and maybe a a, a lower ceiling than a guy who might come in need a little more time to learn the game, but has the potential to have a much much higher ceiling, has much more raw ability. Where, what are you doing with the first pick in that situation? I feel like uh, it's pretty easy to say. I think you want to mix it both. I feel like you want Aiden Hutchinson because you look at him. He comes in, like you said, pretty polished NFL ready. But also, he has a very high ceiling. He could be like a Miles Garrett, uh, a TJ Watt in the NFL. You look at Trayvon Walker, who maybe also has that potential, but comes in with a much lower floor. And I feel like when you look at that, you want the guy who's going to make an impact right away. You don't want to be waiting, like, almost like Daniel Jones. Like, when is he going to be, like, the guy we thought we were getting? And it, I feel like it's pretty easy because if you're a struggling franchise, you don't want, you want to win in the long term. Mm-hmm. But that starts right away. You don't want to keep losing 15, 16 games a year and keep picking. If you keep picking these guys who have low floors, eventually you're just going to have a few great players and a few a bunch of busts on your team. And... I feel like for the quarterback situation, it's the same thing. There's a reason Kenny Pickett has got drafted in the first round. Malik Willis hasn't heard his name called yet. Mm-hmm. That's because Malik Willis has the potential, but he's not as polished and ready yet as Kenny Pickett is. Right. And that's the thing that to me is always the most fascinating about the NFL draft is that there are so many different philosophies. You look at the Ravens, for example, whose philosophy has been for you know now multiple regimes, just best available player. We pick the best available player. Other teams, as we saw with the Patriots, they have their guy. We This is the guy we want, and this is who we're taking to fit in with our scheme and, and what it is that we're doing. Um, I like the Lions draft. I like that they got um, Hutchinson. I like that they got uh, Jamison Williams. I think that those are um, you know two really awesome picks. And then they come you know, back into, into the first round again at the, um, at the back end. And, oh, I'm sorry. That's when the, that's when they traded up, they traded up to get Williamson. And to me, you know, it's an interesting year because as a GM or as a team, how do you manage this draft and how do you manage your team when you may not be in love with the draft class itself? So here you are green Bay who might need help, um, at receiver, I mean, I say might because they, they know things that we don't, but it looks like they need some serious help at receiver. And they're sitting at the back end of the first round, and the run on all first-round receivers goes. So as a GM in that situation, putting on your GM hat, what do you do if you are Green Bay in that situation? Do you trade out? Do you try and trade out of the first round? Do you pivot and go two defensive picks like they did? What are your thoughts on the way Green Bay treated this draft? I, I disagree. I disagree with the way they treated it because I feel like their defense obviously isn't great, but they're, they need a weapon. They lost Devonta Adams. They lost Valdez Scanling. They need a number one or just someone who Aaron Rodgers can throw to. So right now, it might as well be you and me on the field catching absolute bullets from Aaron Rodgers. <laughs> so I feel like the options are you wait there, and you see, uh, I don't think trading up was a good option for them. 
they would have to trade it a lot of capital to get up to where the receivers were being taken. So you had to wait there and if find a weapon you liked. And if you think that weapon's going to be available later in the draft, then you could try to trade back. I feel like what they did is kind of counterproductive. It's like they didn't really get much better. They didn't get any team needs. Mm. I feel like they were kind of drafting just to draft. And you look, there's so many other options, better options. And I feel like they needed a wide receiver with their first pick. If it came now or if they had multiple second round picks where they could take multiple tries at getting a great receiver. I mean, you look at Cooper Cup wasn't a first round pick. A lot of great players aren't first round picks. So you don't need to take your guy in the first round, but you don't want to just like stand there and like just put in names and draft them. And you're not like, oh, I really like this pick. If you don't like the pick, there's not really much point of making it. Gotcha. And just to put a little final stamp on the NFL draft, because we are doing this podcast um, at the time the second round is going on. And we are currently at the 45th pick with the Ravens, and we still only have one quarterback drafted in this draft, which is seems and feels pretty unprecedented, you know, for for what we've been used to the um, the last few years. Now, draft aside and lumping all things together, including trades inside this draft, what are your thoughts on the two big trades: Brown, Marquise Hollywood Brown to the Cardinals? and uh, A.J. Brown. So if you were a wide receiver with the last name Brown yesterday, <laughs> you were on the move. And uh, A.J. to the Eagles. So what are, your, what are your thoughts on those strengths, weaknesses of each team, and moving forward? I like the Hollywood Brown move for both teams involved. The Cardinals didn't give up that much. That would have really helped them. They got a somewhat proven weapon. You know he's going to be solid. He's kind of overrated because he can't really catch. But you already have Hopkins. You have Ertz. You have you have Kyler Murray. You have guys who you know are superstars. You're just building the core around him, trying to go for a run, uh, take the throne in the NFC West over the Rams. And then you look at it for the Ravens. Hollywood Brown wasn't doing that much for them. They have, I guess you could say, their number one target right now in uh, Andrews. That's who Lamar likes to throw to. So, having Hollywood wasn't really necessary. You look at they had a great draft class. They got Kyle Hamilton, mm-hmm. who, in my opinion, is either the best or the second-best player in this whole draft. Uh, I don't understand why, just because he was a safety, he had to f- fall to, like, 14 or 15, wherever he went. Yeah. Like, a bunch of corners. Corners went 3-4, and four, but a safety couldn't go that high. Mm-hmm. It's weird. I think he's great. They had, a, they had a good draft. I feel like that's a good trade for them. And you look at the A.J. Brown trade. That was an atrocious trade for the Titans. They traded A.J. Brown, got a pick back in return that they didn't do much with, nothing that I'm loving, and A.J. Brown is amazing. He got paid, too. Mm-hmm. He got paid, I think, third highest paid receiver in the league. Uh, he's very good when he plays. He struggled at the beginning of last year, but when he's good, he's good because he's, he's fast. He's pretty much an all-around receiver, and he is big. He is big. And I feel like for the uh, Eagles, he's a perfect complement to Devontae Smith. Mm-hmm. And now Jalen Hurts, who has an inconsistent arm, has two amazing receivers to throw to. I think the the Eagles will probably win the NFC East next year. And uh, I think the, the uh, Titans are in like a downspin going towards a rebuild. Here's my interesting thing with the Titans. This is, this is my, my take. I, I like it. But here's the reason I like it. 
they were most likely faced with decision, do we break A.J. Brown off? Do we pay him? Right? Mm-hmm. So we they decide not to pay him, and they basically draft his clone, who we'll see whether or not he, he fits in. But you're going to pay him significantly less than you would have had to pay A.J. Brown. But the question to me is the Titans, where are they really going with Tannehill as their quarterback? So I feel like addressing the quarterback issue in the offseason and saying, you know what, we're going to hold this team together for one more one more run to see if we can get over the hump. Um, but they decided to bring Tannehill back. To me, the Titans are always going to be just a perennial, you know, um, playoff team, but don't seem to have the ability to get past the elite teams like the Bills and the Chiefs. Regular season aside, we're talking playoffs because as we've seen with teams like the Chiefs and the Bills, they hit a different gear when you get into the playoffs. Teams like the Titans don't seem to have that that gear. They might catch you with solid fundamental football, some big plays here or there. But I mean, when you when when you're when Tannehill's your quarterback, and I, I don't really even mean to make it a Tannehill thing, um, I think the question becomes: Do we start paying all these guys, and you know now maybe put ourselves in a position where we can't rebuild, or do we kind of try and do this rebuild on the fly while staying competitive? So keep a lot of the core players release uh, or trade an A.J. Brown, bring in somebody that we hope to get a lot of that kind of productivity from for a fraction of the cost, which then allows us to kind of keep moving new pieces in and around while we search for that combination that might be able to, um, you know, stand toe-to-toe with the Chiefs and the Bills. So I don't hate it. I don't think the Titans have dismantled themselves enough to upset their, their fan base, but I think that they are making some decisions that might help them build some you know, help them build some draft capital and also some room in the salary cap to maybe go out and get a player, you know, down the stretch or even before the season starts, if they feel that they can be, you know, competitive. That's, that's kind of my thought with it. I don't, I don't hate it because I mean, are either one of us picking the Titans to win a Super Bowl if they didn't no. do this? Exactly. No. That's my point. Um, so why not try and be that, you know, go out and, 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 and get some guys that might help you kind of reverse that. I like what the Jets have, are doing. The Jets are infusing their offense with just lots of young guys that are all a year draft class year, not age year, um, apart from each other. So and so they just drafted another running back in the second round today um, that are going to be able to grow together. Who's and that running back that they took for the um, for the second the second round? Is it Brees Hall? Um, hang on a second. Yes, they did. They took Brees Hall. He's the best running back in the class. There you go. So the Jets are absolutely absolutely killing it right now and talking about the best of the best what do you say we transition to major league baseball where you and i were having a conversation off camera about current major league baseball players that you feel are hall of famers based on their production right now or are we talking about based on the potential of their future production it's, it's a mix of both because you have guys who are near the end of their career who are, if they retire today, are first ballot Hall of Famers. Then you have guys who, if they retire today, they would not be like that at all close to mm-hmm. being a Hall of Famer. But I'm predicting that by the end of their career, all of these guys will be uh, a Hall of Famer. 
So I'm just gonna start off with the pretty obvious ones. We got Albert Pujols, who is like a top 20 player of all time. Obviously, he's gonna be a Hall of Famer. You got Miguel Cabrera, just got his 3,000 hit, Hall of Famer. Uh, Yadier Molina. I think it's close because personally, if you look at Yadier Molina from like a talent standpoint, maybe you don't say he's a Hall of Famer, but he's been doing it for so long and he's been so consistent. I feel like he'll end up in the Hall of Fame. Maybe not a first ballot. But definitely eventually. And then you got Clay Kershaw, Hall of Famer. Uh, Justin Verlander, Hall of Famer. You got Max Scherzer, Hall of Famer. And then that's where, and Mike Trout, Hall of Famer. And those are all the guys who, if they retired today, would be a Hall of Famer. You can also throw Bryce Harper in that conversation because he's a two-time MVP. He's going to be a Hall of Famer. Then I have a few guys I wasn't sure about who aren't super young. I just wasn't sure if at the end of their career, it'll be there. You got Chris Sale. Chris Sale is very interesting because when he was good, he was amazing. And he won a championship. He was a big part of that. But he hasn't played in like the last three years. And I don't know if he did it for long enough where you can say he's going to be a Hall of Famer. So I don't, I don't think Chris Sale will be a Hall of Famer. Then you have J.D. Martinez, who I think should be one, but I'm also a Red Sox fan. But uh, he's a D.H., so that already, you have to be amazing to make the Hall of Fame as a DH. And career-wise, he just got started kind of late. And, uh, I mean, he's already slowing down, like, a large amount on the Red Sox. He's no longer going to put up, like, 40 home run, 35 home run season. He'll give you 25 to 30 a year. He's still a good hitter. He's not great. I'm also going to say he's not going to be a Hall of Famer. But both would be close. And then we have Jose Altuve former MVP. I do not think Jose Altuve will be a Hall of Famer because I think talent-wise, I don't think he's good enough to be a Hall of Famer. He had that one MVP, but he just, mm -hmm. he's not great. And then also you have the cheating thing, which you know voters are going to take offense to that, which they should. It's much worse than Barry Bonds taking steroids, and Barry Bonds might be the best player ever. He's not in the Hall of Fame because he took steroids. So, he's banging on so trash cans. We're saying that the knowing the pitcher's throwing a curveball is worse, in your opinion, worse than a hitter taking steroids. Mainly because even if you are chopped from head to toe full of steroids, you still have to hit the ball. Yeah. But knowing what pitch is coming gives you an unfair advantage in regards to being able to hit the ball. Yeah. So we're, we're putting that at, as worse. Where do you then rank betting on baseball? Which I is supposed to be the one unforgivable, right? The unforgivable. This is the Calvin sin. Ridley thing also. He was and Pete Rose. Football. Yeah, Pete Rose. And he's the all-time hits leader. It's not in Cooperstown. I feel like there's a problem because if you look back at people like 20 years from now are going to go to Cooperstown, they're going to be like, where's Alex Rodriguez? Where's mm. Barry Bonds? Where's Roger Clemens? Where's Pete Rose? Where's Kurt Schilling? Right. Maybe Kurt Schilling might be a stretch to be in that group, but uh, uh, he pitched some big games, and, bloody sock game. And then people are gonna say, "Well, they took steroids." Yeah. I guarantee you, if I took steroids right now, I wouldn't be a Division One baseball player. Mm. I mean, it's not like steroids and suddenly you have increased skills at hitting the ball. Just when you hit it, you hit it farther. So maybe you can take say Barry Bonds isn't the home run king. Mm -hmm. Maybe say Hank Aaron is. Or whatever. Any, the top person who didn't take steroids. But he has to be in the Hall of Fame. 
Because if you look at baseball, you can't say anything without Barry Bonds. You look at Jose Altuve. If I'm a hitter and I am insanely jacked because mm-hmm. I've been taking a bunch of steroids, I have no clue what pitch is coming. So I have to be on time still. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter what steroids I have. I can't be like way in front on the curveball and then like just use all arms and hit it 500 feet. That steroids won't do that. And then if I know the curveball's coming mm-hmm. or if I know the fastball's coming, I'm ready for that pitch. So when he knew that fastball was coming, most likely, it's not confirmed, off Chapman. Right. Was it a fastball? Uh, Whatever pitch it was. Yeah. He knew it was coming. So he didn't have to think about anything. He was like, and he, he's an MLB player. So they watch film. He knows Chapman's curveball, fastball, it's going to come in at about this time. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't waiting on anything. He just knew when to swing. Right. Now, here's a question now. If... We're playing a game, and I am able to identify whether or not, you know, somebody's throwing a curveball or whatever, and I relay that information to a hitter. Am I cheating, or am I creating an advantage for my team? And I'm at, I'm at, this is a question, because my, here's, here's what I'm, what I'm, where I'm at, is with the steroid thing, steroids are not, unless uh, I miss something, steroids are not a legal substance. I can't just go and buy steroids to inject myself with. So if I am using steroids, I am consciously cheating. Um, I'm breaking, well, I'm breaking law and I'm cheating. If I am um, playing in a game and figure out a way like where, uh, you know, you can get an unfair advantage, You, you start stealing signs and you break something like that, is that the same type of cheating in your opinion, or is that a different form of cheating? I feel like it's a different form of cheating, because as long as not what the Astros did, if you use your, like, six senses, if you use your eyes, the runner on second base can see, you're looking back and you see the catcher's signs and you pick up on them, you pick up on the other team's uh, signs when they're on the bases, that's all fair, because mm-hmm. you're not doing anything wrong. But if you're using, like, a buzzer or a relay room or trash cans... Or whatever the Red Sox did that one year when they cheated a bit. Or what the Yankees used a replay room. Uh, that is just, you're also consciously cheating. And it's creating an even more unfair advantage for your team. Because you think about that Astros team. Mm-hmm. Every single there, every single uh, player there knew what pitch was coming, most likely. Every right. pitch. So they, they knew, here the trash can, I uh, here it comes. Mm-hmm. That's not just one hitter. If you look back at like Barry Bonds and all those guys, steroids, the whole lineup didn't have steroids. Mm-hmm. It was only that one player. So I feel like it's worse because like it's the management too. Like I, I don't think Barry Bonds' coaches knew he had steroids or Alex Rodriguez's coaches. Like Alex Cora and all those coaches were like, okay, we're just going to go and cheat. We're going to take their sides and we're going to give them to you. It's tough to say. I mean, I think I think you got to believe that that Barry Bonds was was up. I mean, we've all, you know, most of us that that have, you know, had our trials and tribulations uh, you know, of trying to stay or get into shape, you know, and and have gone to the gym before. We under, you we all understand how hard it is to put on a certain level of just pure muscle mass and when you watch and look at Barry Bonds pirate pirate Barry Bonds compared to giant Barry Bonds where his biceps are the size of my quads you know most of us when we were at the gym if we saw our buddy balloon up like that we're gonna say 
what are you taking? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? What what are you on? But here's my question. Should steroids be legal in baseball? I I, I don't think so. Because I've been supporting that Barry Bonds should be in the Hall of Fame and the Astros thing is worse. It's still wrong because you are still giving yourself an unfair advantage that the other team doesn't have. If there was a way... No, there's no way steroids should be legal because pretty much you're just saying, I'm going to give myself this and I'm going to be able to hit the ball farther. If like everyone took steroids, it would be almost against the ju- not juiced ball that they have this right. year. Because it's like, and it would almost make it less fun because everything's like a, a bomb. So like the 450 plus right. uh, home runs are going to be less exciting because you're going to have everybody going up there looking like Barry Bonds. Right. And I guess the question kind of becomes, right? Like if we're watching a sport and I'm sitting there and I'm, um, you know, uh, your age and watching baseball like I did back when, when I was your age and watching guys like Lenny Dykstra or, you know, Mookie Wilson or Keith Hernandez, you know, when we're, if, if, if the whole league is juiced up and we're watching these guys accomplish things and play against each other and compete, but they're basically all hopped up on performance enhancers, do we really feel like we're watching people that we can aspire to be like mm-hmm. on our own? Are we being told, no, what they're doing, you you can't reach unless you enhance yourself with these you know chemicals that you know may cause damage or whatever it might be. So I think that there's something too to just watching players play. I mean, for me, I think I enjoy watching natural athletes compete against each other. There's something that feels identifiable about it, something that feels like I can relate to that. You know, maybe in a former life, I could have been this person with a little bit more talent, not I could have been this person with a little bit more talent and, you know, a couple, you know, uh, cases of steroids or some, something to that to that effect. But it's, it is interesting to me, and, and baseball is, you know, certainly a sport where, you know, we can debate that kind of controversy. And, and, and regarding the Hall of Fame, Let's double back. Let's have a little fun with this. Let's double back to your surefire list. And mm-hmm. I want you to remove three guys from that list that 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 we could make the argument maybe won't be Hall of Famers. So I didn't get into the guys who are questionable and would have to do more. Now the surefire. Yeah, I want I want to go after your surefire list. It can't list. be Pujols or Cabrera. They're in there. Same with Kershaw. So I think, do we do we feel Kershaw's had the body work? I feel like Kershaw will be a Hall of Famer, like a hundred percent. He could retire right now and he'd be a first ballot Hall of Famer. Uh, I feel like compared to guys like Scherzer and Verlander, I would vote him into the Hall of Fame over those two. Uh, and then so Yadier Molina is going to be one of them. And then I think I only have two left out of the. Oh no, I, I have Mike Trout and Bryce Harper too. So I would say Scherzer and Verlander are going to be in the Hall of Fame. Like if they're retired today. See, I feel like you. I feel like we can make the argument that me that, that really that Scherzer. I feel like Scherzer. You don't think Scherzer will be a Hall of Famer? All he's done last year in his National days, his Tiger days, and then Verlander. I'm not a Verlander guy, but he's an MVP. So an MVP as a pitcher, you can't really not be in the Hall of Fame. So I'm gonna take out. Mm, I'm gonna take out Molina. You said three. Molina's out. I'm gonna give you two. I'm gonna give you. I, I, I'm, right. I'll be easier on you. You need to cut two. Now you know what? I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be super generous. You need to cut somebody from this list. All right. It would be Yadier Molina. And why is that? Because he is just frankly not as skilled as the rest of these players. He could never hit like any of these hitters. And as great as he was in the field, that doesn't really make up for it. 
So, I would say him. And then you look at the guys who are, like, questionable. Like, young guys who are going to have to do more. This guy's not young, but Mookie Betts. Mm-hmm. Mookie Betts, off his 2018 year, where he won the championship. He had 346 and, like, 35 home runs. He was the best player in baseball, pretty much. Then he had that great year in 2020, led the, his team to another championship. But then it seems like the years in between, he just struggles. Right. Like, he comes out, he's playing better this year so far. He's playing good. Uh, but it seems like he's not the same guy he used to be. So, I'm going to bet on him keeping up the production he can, the player he can be, as opposed to the player he has been for the last few years. So, I think he'll be in the Hall of Fame. He might already be in there, honestly, the way he's played. Then we got Fernando Tatis. This is all about health for him. Mm-hmm. If he plays, he's going to be a Hall of Famer. He's electric. He's a fan favorite. And, uh... He, he hits bombs, pretty much. And then you got Acuna. I don't even think it's a health thing. I don't, don't think Acuna has health problems. He mm-hmm. had one very serious injury. I think I'm most sure on this one that Acuna will be a Hall of Famer. I'm very sure on that. Then you got Jacob DeGrom. This one is purely on health. <laughs> it's if he stays healthy. If he stays healthy, he's a Hall of Famer. He's already almost a Hall of Famer because he's been that good. So he just needs to have a few more healthy years. He's in there. Juan Soto. Almost the same as Acuna. He's going to be in there. He's mm-hmm. that good of a hitter. Then we have a few that are close, but I think are in there. Francisco Lindor. I think uh, Francisco Lindor, you just look at how good he was in Cleveland. And he's not there yet, but he's pl- starting this year with the Mets. Mm-hmm. He's playing great. I think he's going to have a few great years with the Mets. And then you look back and you're going to be like, this guy's top, top 10 shortstop ever. This guy can't be not in the Hall of Fame. Then, Nolan Arenado. This one's interesting because based off what he did in uh, Colorado, if he did his whole career, he's easily a Hall of Famer. But since he's came out of Colorado, he started off this year hot. But uh, last year with the Cardinals, he didn't hit the ball the same way that he did in Colorado for obvious reasons. Right. Because of course field and the altitude. But uh, he started this year hot. I think he's going to... He's a great hitter. I think he'll get used to not hitting in Colorado. I think he'll be in the Hall of Fame. And then I couldn't go a whole episode without mentioning Wander Franco. Uh, I'm also very, pretty confident in this one. Wander Franco, barring like serious injuries, is a Hall of Famer. He's that talented. His first year in the league, before he's only played like 60 games, and I already thought he was a top like 13 player in the league. Mm. That's how good he is. Then you got uh, Garrett Cole. I don't think Garrett Cole will be a Hall of Famer. I had a question mark next to him because he can't pitch without the spider tack. Uh, and then two more, Freddie Freeman. Freddie Freeman's in the Hall of Fame. That one's almost a surefire, Freddie Freeman. Then you got Shohei. I'm not a Shohei guy, mm-hmm. but I feel like the way the narrative around Shohei, if he retired right now, there would be a way that the fans and media would get him into the Hall of Fame because he had one great year and he hits and he pitches. Right, it's a little, yeah. I mean, that's, I feel like that's a he's a, that's a reach, but he's got a he he definitely has to put in you know several more years. I feel like in order to get to that level. But you know, one thing that you, that we did establish and you did make clear is that you know the the juicers are not allowed in the Hall of Fame. And one thing we know for a fact right now is that the one thing that is not juiced in baseball is the ball itself this year. 
um, we were talking again, and, and you pointed this out. What what are your feelings right now on run production in in Major League Baseball in the 2022 season? I feel like baseball last year was very fun. There was people were hitting bombs. The pitchers were still good though. Great pitchers got it done. It showed who the right pitchers were. The balls were juiced, and people were hitting home runs. There was a lot of runs being scored. It made the game exciting. So far this year, baseball hasn't been as exciting. Personally, maybe it's because the Red Sox aren't good. But uh, opening day, I was watching. It wasn't the Red Sox, so they weren't playing. Like, two mediocre teams. I fell asleep. Mm. And then, like, uh, the Red Sox yesterday, they lost one nothing. There's a lot of games like that where it's like, why isn't no one scoring runs? I know these pitchers aren't that good because these guys are professional hitters who if a normal person faced them, they'd hit a, uh, they would crush the ball 99% of the time. Right. So it's, it's like, we actually have a statistic here that uh, teams are averaging 4.02 runs a game this year, which mm-hmm. is the lowest since 1976. 1976. Who was playing in 1976? People who were not as good as the hitters today. <laughs> so, bring back the juice ball. Because it's not like the pitchers already have an advantage when they're facing a batter. Because they can choose what pitch they want to throw. Mm. Batter doesn't know what pitch the pitcher's going to throw unless the Astros situation so they have to it's almost partially a guessing game partially you have to be a great hitter right and especially take the fact that if they crush the ball it might not even be a hit Mm -hmm. it might die on the warning track it's like it's such a disadvantage for them no wonder no runs are being scored but then you could almost make the same point that great hitters would get it done like Mike Trout still getting it done but I feel like baseball's not as fun if people aren't scoring runs and doesn't, like, ruin the game. I'm not saying juice up the balls where if it's contact, it's a hit. Right. It's coming 110. No. But, like, if the ball is hit well, it should carry. Mm-hmm. That's how the ball should be built. It should be more like it was last year where the great hitters are great and good hitters are good. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, you even go back to the steroid <laughs> era, and now you got to chuckle because, I mean, the, the the slogan that Major League Baseball was using at, the, at that time is so not PC with chicks dig the long ball, you know? I mean, that's just, I'd like to see them try to use that that nowadays. I mean, I'm sitting here scratching my head saying, oh, my God, that's, what were they thinking? But, um, you know, you're right. It's I think there's purists out there that, that love, you know, the, the concept that, you know, good pitching you know, beats good hitting, you know, 70, you know, 70 to 80% of the time. Um, And, you know, low scoring games are the way the game was supposed to be played. But I think fans, and especially today's fans that are used to, you know, high action sports, bite-sized content, you know, you don't want to have to sit through, you know, nine innings of just, you know, this ho-hum you know, one run kind of game in in and out. Sometimes they can be really fun. Playoff baseball, low scoring playoff baseball, where teams are scrapping for runs, and mm-hmm. you know that 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 is very exciting, and and I still really do enjoy that. But I think you know I do share a lot of the sentiment that you know modern fans do, where you want to see some action. I mean, you know, you don't want the game to be seven hours long because it's you know <laughs> a sixteen you know sixteen fifteen you know ball game, but. There, there is a there is a balance, and and I do agree with you. Now I know that we were not going to touch on the NBA that much today, but before we close everything out, 
why don't you give all of our fans out there just your thoughts on on where we are right now with the NBA playoffs before we we get to the good stuff when we reach finals time. I feel like for the NBA playoffs, it shows how much parity there is in the NBA today, and it's great. There were 16 teams that made the playoffs. There could have been 20. Mm. And you look at teams like the Pelicans. The Pelicans are competing. They competed. The series is over against the Suns without their best player. So I feel like every team is somewhat even. But that, with that being said, I feel like the four best teams in the NBA are pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. There's two from each conference. It works out pretty well. Look at the Suns. The best team during the regular season. And you look at the two games they lost against the Pelicans. Good job at the Pelicans. One of them, Devin Booker, was going crazy. He had 30-something points at halftime, and he got injured. So, and then the other one, Devin Booker just missed. Mm. So, without their best player, they still put up a fight. So, I feel like if Devin Booker's healthy, which he came back for the last game, so if they have good health, I feel like they're amazing. I think they will still go to the finals, as I said earlier, but then I think they'll play the Warriors in the conference finals. The Warriors will give them a good run. So the Warriors build this team amazing. In those few years where Steph and Clay were injured, they weren't really top of the mountain. Mm-hmm. They drafted Jordan Poole. Jordan Poole, he's amazing. They drafted guys like Kaminga and Moses Moody. Guys who are not amazing, obviously, but they're contributing to this team, which is like, what holes this team have? Maybe they don't defend the rim that great. But they got shooters on shooters. Everyone on their team can score. Everyone on their team can shoot, except for maybe Draymond. And, uh, I mean, like, when compared to the other teams in the West who, like, moved on, those two, like, stand out. And then the East, they saved the Celtics for last. So let's talk about the Bucks, the defending champions. Uh, it's too bad that the Celtics and Bucks are playing this series. Uh, I think the Bucks beat the Bulls with Chris Middleton being injured. I don't think the Bucks will win at all. I don't think the Bucks will win this series against the Celtics. I don't think they would either way, but especially because Chris Middleton's injured. But if he was healthy, they're the defending champs. They're that good. And then, you look at the Celtics. The Celtics might be the best team, like, ever. Like, I'm exaggerating there. You're coming for the guy wearing a Celtics jersey. <laughs> watching the Celtics, it's it's beautiful because they play great defense. Their defense of switching everything mm-hmm. works great because they have ten guys who can defend one through five. Mm-hmm. And then, offensively, they're no longer just playing the last five years of Celtic basketball, which is, it's my turn to isolate. It's your turn to isolate, like switching mm-hmm. off. Ime Adoka, who I love Ime Adoka. Being the year, I wasn't happy because he was calling out Tatum and Brown. He was saying they need to pass the ball. They need to be more unselfish. He was right. He made the team buy into what he was saying. Now, Jason Tatum makes great passes. They The ball moves amazingly. Uh... Marcus Smart is still Marcus Smart, except to a different degree now, because now he can shoot also. We have a deep bench. we got Grant Williams, Peyton Pritchard. I think we're coming out of the East, and uh, we'll play either the Bucks or the uh, the Sixers or the Heat. I don't really care. Neither of those teams are that good in my mind, even though Jimmy Butler is putting on a master class right now, uh, after I've said many times that he can't shoot. Mm-hmm. He is shooting the ball. And I'm actually changing my prediction from the last podcast. I don't think the Suns will beat the Celtics in seven. I think the Celtics will win the championship in seven games. All right, you've heard it here first. Celtics are going to win the championship. However, my last question to you for the day is this, and then and let's close out on this thought. Which current playoff team needs to be blown up, and not physically blown up, 
<laughs> but blown up roster-wise and rebuilt. That's an interesting one, and I feel like it's a fairly obvious answer. It's the Brooklyn Nets. The Brooklyn Nets put together these, let's think about it like chemistry. They had a bunch of elements. They put the elements together. I failed they, chemistry, they, so you already gone over my head. I haven't even taken chemistry yet. Then why are we talking about chemistry? They, they put the <laughs> chemicals together, and it exploded. James Harden and Kyrie Irving, not James Harden and Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, the experiment failed. They brought in James Harden, who then they traded for a bench warmer who looks like a flamingo on the bench. I don't I don't know what he's doing. He, he looks like a clown. And then a shooter in a rental big man. And then Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving are, plain and simple, great players still. I'm not here to say that they're not all-star, superstar players. Mm-hmm. They're not as good as they used to be. Jason Tatum, obviously not biased. It's better than both. You look at that series. Kyrie Irving had that great first game. He flipped off the uh, Celtics fans, TD Garden, like six times. In like six different creative ways. But I just... that After that, he couldn't buy a bucket. We locked him up. And I feel like both of their games are almost one-dimensional. Kevin Durant, uh, all series was not bad. Just kind of inefficient, ineffective. Till obviously game four where he was really good but it was too late then mm-hmm. uh i feel like they're both getting locked up and i was telling you this earlier you watch kevin durant kevin durant's amazing but he doesn't have like a deep bag of moves mm-hmm. he really you watch it he has two moves he doesn't shoot many layups he doesn't shoot he doesn't do he doesn't dunk much he doesn't get to the rack he will either he has the ball top the key wing he'll either take one dribble or no dribbles pull up with the three Will it take max two dribbles and pull up for a mid-range uh, between like 10 to right in front of the three-point line? And I feel like the Celtics kind of figured that out. They were like, he's going to shoot this. We can get good contests. If he makes it, this is what he did in game four, it's Kevin Durant. If he misses it, which he did for most of the series, it's really good. I feel like just they don't play defense, the Nets. And when their offense isn't clicking, which by their offense, I mean Katie and Kyrie, they, they're not going to win the game. So I feel like they should blow it up. Keep Ben Simmons, because you can't trade Ben Simmons now. Mm-hmm. Uh, see if he comes back. Maybe keep one of the stars, but I would say get rid of Kyrie. Clear up some cap space to maybe you can still contend. But like you were saying earlier, like swap in pieces. Mm-hmm. Or maybe not. don't even bring in another star. Get rid of Kyrie, bring in a lot of depth. If they hadn't made that James Harden trade, they would probably be the championship favorites. They still had Jared Allen. Karis Laverne and Spencer Dinwiddie, mm-hmm. that would be great. But uh, I think it's time for them. The experiment failed. The chemistry blew up. Uh, I think at least one of those two stars should be uh, gone this offseason. All right. I agree with what you said completely. Keep Simmons, build around him, and see what you can do when you start adding some some secondary pieces instead of trying to go out and just load your team up with, with star power at, at all costs. Well... Fantastic show, my friend. As we are closing out, we are on pick number 52 in the NFL draft and still only one quarterback taken. That is absolutely bananas to me. But everybody out there, thank you so much for listening and watching. And until next time, keep rocking. And look for Zach behind the plate. Hopefully Westfield freshman baseball gets a few more dubs by then. Yeah. (laughs) All right.